What we're going to do today is we're going to begin a discussion of deliverance, defense. Most people just call it spiritual warfare, exorcism. But this is the area of all the areas where I think there's more unbiblical teaching than in any of the other areas that we've talked about so far. The faithful angels, the fallen angels, pretty much we've just looked at matter of fact. We thank you so very, very much. We, we've tried to be fairly just matter of fact. There have been a few things that we've talked about that were a little bit of speculation, but even when we speculate, we try to use what what Dr. Bennett, my mentor, used to call sanctified speculation. At least keep it somewhere close to Scripture, even if you're speculating. But we are now entering an area where there is so much teaching. I'm not sure all of it is false, but I'm telling you, most of it is made out out of thin air, made up out of thin air. There is just not much in the Bible about exorcism and deliverance and defense. And we're going to get into all of the reasons for that as we move through this particular lesson. But in part one, we've got to set the stage. So let's begin with this. The only way to avoid doctrinal error or heresy. Now, there is a difference. You can be doctrinally wrong and still not be a heretic. There are many other denominations that are Orthodox Christian, but they believe things that we do not. They embrace certain things that we do not think are accurate biblically. But that doesn't mean that they're heretical. Heretical or heresy uh, comes when a person begins to deviate from Scripture and to teach things that are contrary to Scripture or teach things that the Bible does not teach. Then we begin to dabble into heresy or the heretical. So the only way to avoid doctrinal error or heresy is to embrace the sufficiency of Scripture. Now, what do we mean by the sufficiency of Scripture? Well, what we mean is that the Bible is enough. God's Word tells us everything that we need to know about everything that we need to know about. It is not to say that the Bible tells us everything. The Bible doesn't tell me how to change the spark plugs on, on an engine. The Bible doesn't tell me, you know, how, how to bake a cake. I mean, there's obviously things outside of the Scripture that God has not told us, all kinds of information. But when it comes to spiritual truths, the Bible and God's Word alone are sufficient for our understanding. Now, the reason why this is so important is because if the Bible is not sufficient, and even though many Christians will tell you, oh, I believe in the sufficiency of Scripture, but they'll still teach things that are outside of the Bible. Even if they're not contradicting Scripture, they teach stuff that the Bible doesn't teach. Much of the stuff out there today on deliverance ministry and exorcism is stuff that the Bible doesn't say. Now, there are many... reasons that people teach some of the things that they teach. Oddly enough, guys like Bob Larson say that they've interviewed demons, people who are demonically possessed, before, quote, casting them out, and they asked the demons, and the demons told them this information. Or people who were saved out of witchcraft and the occult have said, well, you know, this and this and that and that, and this is what if Christians did this, it had more effect on us. As if 
we ought to be believing demons. I mean, isn't Satan called the father of lies? So if you were to able if you were able to sit down and interview the devil, do you think you could believe what he tells you? If he's the father of lies? So what we mean by the sufficiency of scripture is that we don't go beyond what scripture says. Obviously, we don't contradict what scripture says. We skillfully handle or the old King James rightly divide the word of God. But we certainly do not go beyond Scripture and start to teach things as fact that the Bible does not verify when we're talking about spiritual issues. Now, we may be able to say, well, you know, I believe about this. Okay, that's fine. But that's not orthodox Christian doctrine. And so sufficiency of Scripture is critical. Second Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, you know these verses, but these verses tell us how important The sufficiency of Scripture is. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Now, what else do we need to do other than doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction? That the man of God may be complete, mature, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, here's what Paul is telling us. The Bible is all we need. We can be everything that God wants us to be in this world by just following what the Bible explicitly teaches. We don't have to go outside of Scripture. We don't have to speculate. We don't have to listen to those who say they've interviewed demons before they cast them out of people and wrote down everything that the demon told them. That's extra biblical. It may or may not be true. These experiences are real. I'm convinced of that. But I'm not necessarily certain that all of these things that these deliverance teachers, and some of them are relatively orthodox individuals, so I don't want to to convey the idea that all of these people are heretics. There are all kinds of people with good, solid doctrinal backgrounds who teach all kinds of things on casting out demons and uh, deliverance and uh, spiritual warfare and defense that are not found in Scripture. I choose to be one who follows the, the sufficiency of Scripture. And I try not to go outside that. And I certainly make it quite clear, if I do, that this is not necessarily what the Bible says. But in, in answer to maybe some question that we have, this might be what is true. But we have to be even careful about that. Another passage of Scripture is found in Second Peter chapter 1, verses 2, 3, and 4. At the end of his life, Peter thinks it's important enough that he writes, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. As his divine power has given to us all things, notice, all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue. Now, how do we have the knowledge of him? This. This is the only sure word of prophecy that we have. Something outside of this may be true, but the operative word there is may. May be true. Well, I can't afford to base my walk, my obedience, my understanding of God, my teaching, my preaching on things that might be true. 
I have to teach and preach those things that I know beyond a shadow of a doubt are true. And then I have to build my life on those things. He goes on to say, by which we have been given, which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises. Where? Here. That through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Peter then is going to go on in this chapter to talk about how we got our Bibles, and he also talks about it in his first letter. And he makes it abundantly clear that God's Word is sufficient for everything that we need spiritually. Everything. So when we begin to walk into an area of exorcism, defense against dark powers, deliverance of those who are demonically possessed or oppressed, we have to be very, very careful because this becomes a sensational discussion. And there are all kinds of people out there who claim the name of Christ that are having all kinds of visions and dreams and revelations Some of them, sadly, are not congruent with Scripture. Many of them, meaning the visions, the dreams, these predictions, don't come true. What did God say in the Old Testament about an Old Testament prophet? He had to be accurate 100% of the time because he is presuming to speak for God. Therefore, if he's speaking for God, God is never wrong. So this, this becomes a slippery slope if we're not careful. And there are numerous books out there that may be helpful, may not be, but they extrapolate things out of the Bible that are just simply not there. And we get into great trouble and vulnerability when we argue from the silent part of the Bible. It's what I've often called reading the white part of your Bible. The spaces in between the print. We may extrapolate something that could possibly be true. That the Bible doesn't explicitly state. But how will we know? Now some would say, well, we just know by experience. Well, friend, I have lived long enough to know that my experience is sometimes misleading and deceptive. Remember, we've already looked at the passage where Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. That Satan and his ministers, which would be human and demonic, are transformed into angels of light that they might possibly deceive the very most learned believer. They masquerade as God's messengers. So this is a a very dangerous, dangerous topic that we're about to begin to discuss. Now, there's nothing wrong with talking about deliverance and exorcism and, and spiritual warfare and defense against the powers of darkness, but it's dangerous if we veer outside of Scripture. This is why I don't read books about people's dreams and then what God's telling them through these dreams. How do I know that's what God said? You say, well, Daniel, these people aren't Daniel. And what Daniel did is recorded in Scripture. So be very wary. I don't care who the person is. I don't care how orthodox they may be. Be very wary of any books about any topic, especially this one, that that are written by anyone when they extrapolate outside of Scripture. Because I can't verify 
This is one of the reasons why if someone were to jump up in here and rattle off a testimony or something in another language that I don't know, how am I going to know what they're saying? Then if someone else stood up and said, well, I know what they said and here's what they said. Well, how do I know that they're telling me exactly what that person said? Because I don't know that person's language to begin with. And then, of course, the modern charismatic movement, they say, well, we're not even speaking earthly languages. We're speaking a heavenly language. Well, then we can't ever verify. We can't ever know if what they're saying is true. This is the danger. So I'm I'm giving as strong of a warning as I can. Now, there are a couple of guys that I have found very helpful in this particular study. The man on the right is Justin Peters, who is an evangelist. And then the man on the left is Jim Osman, who pastors a church in northern Idaho, just right up on the American-Canadian border. In fact, Pam and I have been up there. He's just north of Sandpoint. He, he pastors there. Jim is, uh, is one of these guys that really sticks to sufficiency of Scripture, and so is Justin. And, man, they say, man, if God says it, then that's true. But if God doesn't say it, then we can't know whether that's true or not. I want you to listen to what Jim says about um, these teachers on defense against darkness and deliverance and all this. He says, one of the main problems with the modern spiritual warfare movement methodology is their view of the believer's authority in Jesus Christ. This can be seen in the new apostolic reformation and word of faith slash charismatic circles. They believe that Christ's authority translates into our authority, and because we are seated and raised with him in the heavenly places, his authority is ours, and we are to use it in the same way that he used his authority. Popular teachers like Neil T. Anderson, Mark Brubeck, John A. McMillan, and others make this claim. Now, let me show you how far this can be taken. Written by a gentleman named John A. McMillan, who has a pretty good resume, good reputation, wrote this book a number of years ago, The Authority of the Believer. But I want you to listen to what he said about your authority. It's been pointed out more than once in this study, he's meaning the book, the authority of which we are speaking is the portion of every believer. It is not a special gift imparted as an answer to prayer, but the inherent right of the child of God because of his elevation with Christ to the right hand of the Father. He has become, through the rich mercy of God, an occupant of the throne of the Lord. I want you to hear that. With all that implies in privilege and responsibility. This elevation took place potentially at the resurrection of the Lord and because of the believer's inclusion in him. It is ours simply to recognize the fact of this position and to take our place in humble acceptance, giving all of the glory and honor to God. Now here's a man who I believe in many ways is probably an Orthodox Christian who said that you occupy the throne of God, accept that knowledge humbly. Do you realize that I, I believe that's almost heretical to say that? You and I do not possess the throne of God. Now, in Christ, yes, we are co-heirs. But that does not mean that I'm also the second person of the Trinity, like Jesus is. I have not become, just because I've been redeemed, a member of the Godhead. 
This is why this can become so dangerous. What do you think it does to people's thinking and their theology if they start believing that they're actually enthroned with Christ and they possess His throne? Doesn't that, by extrapolation, make them God? Most certainly does. You say, well, damn, people would never believe that. Oh, my gosh. In the Word of Faith movement, the little God teaching is throughout that we're little gods. That we're not just redeemed men and women. We're gods on this earth. And that gives way to things that, well, it's impossible to correct. So this is, this is how just a subtle shift can make someone almost heretical. I believe that it's almost blasphemous to say... I possess the throne of Jesus, that I am seated at the right hand of the Father. Now, we'll get to the verse where he says we're seated in heavenly places. I understand what the Bible says, but that isn't what it means. It does not mean that I am co-regent with Jesus, and I occupy his throne, and I've now entered the Godhead. I am not divine. I never have been divine. I never will be divine. And I will never be a member of the Godhead. I do not have, nor will I ever have, divinity. And that's the only one who can possess the throne of God. This is very, very important. And I know that I'm driving this nail deep. But the reason I am is because what we're about to embark upon is so critical. We better understand some things. So let's talk just a minute about our authority in Christ. What, what, what does it mean when we say that we have the authority of Christ? What did it mean when he ordained the disciples? What did it mean when he sent them out by twos to witness and they came back rejoicing that even the demons were subject to them? And Jesus said, oh, don't, don't celebrate the fact that demons are subject to you. Celebrate the fact that your names are in the Lamb's book of life. That's the thing we celebrate. But in Christian circles, we get all amped up about things that Jesus considers secondary. I've known Christians that were so gone to seed on prophecy, that's the only thing they want to study. It's the only thing they want to talk about is eschatology, eschatology, eschatology. Now, is eschatology important? Of course it is. A good deal of scripture is about the end time events. We need to know what the Bible says about all that. But I've known people that have gone so to seed, if they're ever given an opportunity to teach any lesson, to talk to anyone, that's what they're going to talk about. Prophecy, 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 prophecy. And before long, most of those people get into predictive prophecy. And they start saying, well, this is the Antichrist. And this is the mark of the... I'm talking about things that are happening in current news. And then they're always proven to be wrong, and they lose credibility. So it's important that we get this right. So number two on your outline, but didn't Jesus say his followers will do greater works than he had done? Yes, Jesus actually said that. It's recorded in John chapter 14, verse 12. Jesus said, most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these he will do because I go to my Father. Okay, at face value, if you didn't know Scripture, if you didn't 
rightly divide God's word, you would say, what this means is I'm going to be able to work more and more dramatic miracles than Jesus did. Is that what Jesus meant? Well, first of all, did the apostles replicate the miracle working of Jesus? No. Now, were they able to work some miracles? Yes. But they never came close to what Jesus did. Not a one of them, as far as I know, ever walked on water. Not a one of them, as far as I know, ever spoke to the storm and stopped it. I'm talking about the apostles. So did Jesus mean, take all the miracles that I've done, and you all that follow after me will do more miracles and bigger miracles than I ever thought about performing? That is not even what he meant. Let's begin by understanding this. Jesus' ministry basically was fulfilled within about a hundred mile radius. He really never got outside of that. The Son of God limited himself to a very small area comparatively when we're talking about the Son of God. He did not visit North America in spite of what Joseph Smith claimed. None of that stuff. Now he made North America. He spoke it into existence. So that's probably better than visiting. But he never really got outside of that 100-mile radius. But after Pentecost, what happened? The gospel went everywhere. So much so that what did those living in that day say about the early church? Well, in Acts 17, 6, they said, they're turning the world upside down. Jesus was never accused of turning the world upside down. Oh, now, he was accused of a lot of things. And they hated him, especially the Pharisees. But Jesus never went outside of that approximate 100-mile radius. But the moment that the day of Pentecost comes, the disciples, out across the earth. In John chapter 6, verses 28 and 29, then they said to him, What shall we do that we may work the works of God? Now remember, Jesus said, greater works than I have done, you will do. What did he mean? More miracles? You all will walk on water every day. You can go out and walk on the lake before you have breakfast. Um, If you don't like the weather, well, just step outside your house and rebuke it. You say, well, Dan, that's foolishness. The Word of Faith movement teaches that Christians can do that right now. I'd love to get Joyce Meyer or somebody else over here in Oklahoma when one of those twisters is coming through and have them to demonstrate their power. But they claim you can. Is that what Jesus meant? Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God. So they're saying, well, what are your works? He said, I'll tell you what my work is. That you believe in him whom he sent. Now you say, Dan, is that the limit of the works of God? Well, of course not. We're to minister to people. We're to help people. We're to teach. We're to preach. We're to witness. We're to live godly lives. But ultimately, Jesus sums up his entire work in one task. That people come to know him. That is the work of God. So let's go back when Jesus said, greater works that I have done, you will do. And he defined God's work primarily as people believing in him. 
This is why what we call the Great Commission is central. This is what he was talking about. In Matthew 28, verses 18 and 19, what did he say? Go, make uh, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Trinity, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Why do we focus on this as the Great Commission? And every evangelical church that I've ever known of has that in their mission statement. The Great Commission. Because that's the great work of the church. Now, yes, we're to disciple. Yes, we're to discipline. If people get out of line and are not doing what God would want them to do in their life, yeah, we're supposed to help the needy. and we're, All these things are an outflow of who we are as believers. But the primary focus of the New Testament church is what Jesus called bringing people to the place that they will believe in Him. That's the primary thrust. This is it. This is why we call this the Great Commission. We don't take some passage of Scripture where Jesus opened blind eyes or or mended crippled legs or brought Lazarus back from the dead and call that the Great Commission. Our Great Commission is to go out and raise all the dead. And yet there are word of faithers who claim they can do that. Well, then I'd like to see one. Do you think if someone actually raised someone from the dead that you wouldn't know about it? I mean, if they actually did. Now, I have this, I actually have this documented, but I just want to give it as an example. There was a time when Oral Roberts, obviously, when he was living, said that he had raised so many people from the dead, he couldn't really remember how many. Let me assure you, if I've raised people from the dead, I won't only remember how many. I can tell you their shoe size. (laughs) So someone there pressed him on the issue. And said, well, could you give us the name? Well, he couldn't remember any names. I promise you, if I raise one person from the dead, I will remember their name. Finally, they kept pressing him until he remembered way back in his old tent revival days that there was a woman that stood up screaming that her baby had stopped breathing. Now, we all know that it's not uncommon for infants to actually stop breathing. It's a terrifying experience as a parent, but... Babies can do that. Well, she was screaming hysterically, and so Roberts jumped down off of the stage and ran back there. And by the time he got to the woman and the baby, and he, I guess, put his hands on the baby or held the baby, the baby had started breathing again. And that was the only example he could give of having raised so many people from the dead, he just couldn't remember how many. Let me tell you why he couldn't remember how many, because he hadn't done it at all. He hadn't raised anybody from the dead. Raising the dead, opening blind eyes, healing crippled limbs is not the great commission. And we're going to see in just a moment that that is not what the church has primarily done through the history of the church. And I'm talking about the biblical, correct history of the church. It is the great commission. Now let me illustrate it for you. Just as soon as the day of Pentecost comes... Peter steps up onto the stage in Jerusalem. Somebody's getting a call or really enjoying a song. Who would that be? Anybody got a phone in a purse or under a chair? Oh, thank you. 
Hey, it happened to me a while ago. I had my phone up here because I used a quote from Robert Robinson. I don't know if any of you heard it toward the end of the message. I got a stupid weather alert on this dadgum thing. And the only reason I didn't put it on airplane mode is I needed to read the quote. This stuff, I don't know whether it's a blessing or a curse. So, hey, I've had it happen to me. Okay, look, day of Pentecost comes, Peter jumps up and preaches. Thousands of Jews are there in Jerusalem because of the Passover, and they're staying over to Pentecost, which was a Jewish feast. So Peter, Peter, Peter is preaching on the day of Pentecost, and the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved, and that is not the actual verse that I wanted to give. Because in that passage at the end of the sermon, 3,000 people respond to the invitation. That's the verse I wanted to give. 3,000 people were saved at the altar call, and those are just the men. If you count the women and youngsters, it could have been three times that many. I don't know. But we know that 3,000 were saved. Then if you go to Acts chapter 4, verse 4, this is the uh, example where uh, Peter and John were going up into the temple. The lame man asked them for money, and they heal him. And then standing on Solomon's portico, crowd gathers because of this healing. Peter begins to preach again, and here I do have the right uh, passage. However, many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. Now, most people who pastor a church, most preachers who pastor a church of 5,000 consider themselves fairly successful in the ministry, a church of 5,000. Can you imagine someone who gives an invitation and 5,000 people come forward in the invitation? It's unbelievable. So just a little before that, he had given an invitation on the day of Pentecost, and 3,000 had been saved, just the men. Now you have 5,000 men. Again, the number could have been twice that high. We don't know how many it actually was. So here in just a matter of a, a short span of time, Peter has given two invitations, maybe others, but these two are recorded. He's given two invitations at the end of sermons, and he's had 8,000 men saved. Now we don't know how many people Jesus actually reached during his earthly ministry. We don't. And I'm not silly enough to assume that only the 120 in the upper room were the only disciples that Jesus had. But I would suggest to you that it was not a large number, not compared to what you think the Son of God would do. Uh, I don't think Jesus ever gave an invitation and had 3,000 conversions, just men only, or 5,000 conversions. These are the greater works Jesus was talking about. This was what he was saying when he said, greater works than I have done you will do because he identified what the work of God is. The work of God is bringing people to the place that they believe on him whom the Father had sent. That's Jesus' own definition of the work of God. That is ultimately the job of the church. So then let's come to question number three. Do believers actually possess then the authority of Jesus? Because we really haven't totally answered that. Well, that comes, that belief comes from, I think, a misunderstanding of Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6. In Ephesians 2, 6, Paul says that God in Christ has raised us up together and made us, uh, made us sit together. There's an S missing. Good grief. I wish Pam would proof this stuff. Would uh, sit uh, together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Or he may have made us it, but I think it was sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. 
This is where the quote comes from a while ago from the book about spiritual warfare that we are seated in the throne of Jesus. That is not what Paul is implying here. What Paul is implying is that in Christ, we have inherited the kingdom of God through our very redemption. And we have been brought into the family of God and are included in his great work for now and for eternity. It doesn't mean that I have assumed the authority of Christ. I can only speak with the authority of Christ when I speak words that are recorded in his word. I cannot walk around claiming that I have the authority of Christ because I don't. God's word, the words of Jesus carry their own authority. Now, I am an ambassador for Christ. And because I'm an ambassador for Christ, I speak on Christ's behalf. But that's not the same as to have the authority of Christ. We authorize police officers to be able to stand in the middle of a street and stop the traffic. And we stop because they have been given authority. But what if that police officer is just doing that for the fun of it? What if he's doing it because there's not an emergency or there's no reason? He just decides he wants to flex his authority muscles. It's not really his authority. And if he misuses it, he'll be disciplined or penalized in some way. He is only standing in that position of authority because it has been granted to him by virtue of the greater authority. Does that make sense? That's who we are in Christ. Now, if we stop practicing what many people practice where we read one verse and we stop, sometimes we can solve a lot of these problems. Because if you read verse 7 of Ephesians 2, you then understand what Paul meant. Raised us up together, made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. That's what Paul was trying to say. What Paul is trying to say is that in Christ, you have now been saved for eternity, and God will reveal to you in the ages, the eons to come, and really they're not even ages or eons because time will be no more, but from our perspective, in the multiplied centuries to come, he will reveal what we've inherited in Christ. That's what Paul is trying to say. So God is saying that once we're saved, it's as if we've already been seated in heaven. And God is going to reveal to us this massive inheritance through the ages to come. But it doesn't mean that I've become co-regent with Jesus. I share his throne. I have his authority, thus basically making me a member of the Godhead. It's very important that we get this. So let me give you a couple of examples of where even angels would not say something that silly. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, Peter says, Whereas angels, who are greater in power and might, do not bring a reviling accusation against them before the Lord, but these like natural brute beasts, made to be caught and destroyed, speak evil of the things they do not understand and will utterly perish in their own corruption." Now, in the context of that, what Peter is talking about is false teachers. 
And he says these false teachers make all of these claims and they speak all of these declarative uh, statements and they, you know, rebuke the devil and they rebuke demons and they do all this kind of stuff. And he says even angels don't do that. And they're greater in power than these false teachers. But even the angels don't do that. Now let me give you another passage that gives us an exact example of that. You're familiar with this in the book of Jude, verses 9, 10, and 11. Yet Michael the archangel, in contending with the devil, when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these false teachers speak evil of whatever they do not know and whatever they know naturally like brute beasts. It's almost parallel to Peter's writing. In these things they corrupt themselves. Woe to them! For they have gone in the way of Cain. They have run greedily in the air of Balaam for profit and perished in the rebellion of Korah. So in these two passages of Scripture, Peter and Jude are talking about the fallacy and the error of false teachers But in illustrating how we as humans should not presume to know all there is to know about demons and speak against demons and rebuke the devil, Michael wouldn't even rebuke the devil. Now I'm telling you, Michael, the archangel, is far greater than we are. And he wouldn't even presume to rebuke the devil. He called upon the Lord. Called upon the Lord. So here's the thing. We must understand that to speak about things that we don't know about and to command demons and to command the devil, these are things that even the angels don't do. Why would we presume that we could do that? Well, it's because this false idea that I have the authority of Christ. I can do whatever Jesus did. Well, then go out and walk on water. Go to over the cemetery and bring some up out of, someone up out of the ground. Go over to the hospital and clear it out. Jesus could do all of those things. If I have the authority of Christ, shouldn't I be able to do all of that? If I have the authority of Christ, shouldn't I be able to do all of that? Well, if I have the authority of Christ, the answer is yes. If I want sunshine, I ought to be able to rebuke the rain. If I want cool weather, I ought to be able to rebuke the sun. Jesus could do that. So these people who walk around claiming that they have the authority of Christ, they can speak to demons, command demons, and rebuke the devil and all this. No, they can't. They do not have the authority of Christ at the level at which they imply. Now, do we speak in Christ's stead? Of course we do. We're ambassadors for Christ. But we are not Christ. I can't save anybody. It was either Charles Spurgeon or D.L. Moody was one time harassed by someone who said, Hey, I saw one of the people that you saved downtown the other day. He was staggering around drunk. And it was either Spurgeon or D.L. Moody said, Well, that was probably somebody I saved. But if you saw someone Jesus saved, they wouldn't look like that. I can't save. I can't bring people back from the dead. If I could, I'd have brought my dad back when he died. I miss my grandparents sometimes so much. Why don't I just bring them back from the dead? Jesus brought Lazarus back. 
Paul brought a man back from the dead that had fallen out of the window, broken his neck when he hit the ground. You see, this is foolishness. These people do not have the authority of Christ, but they go around strutting around claiming they do by claiming to do things that they never are put on the spot to prove that they can do. That's why this is so important. We must understand these things as we, as we kind of delve into this deliverance and spiritual warfare and defense. We, we are not Christ on this earth. We must understand that. I, I hope that I'm making that clear, but, but in, a, in a very good way. Number four, but isn't Jesus our example? Are we supposed to do what Jesus did? This is what people will say. Well, Jesus is my example. I'm just following Jesus. So I'll go around casting out demons. Uh, I'll go around healing the sick. Well, isn't it always so interesting that they, they practice selective miracles? Miracles that you can't determine whether or not they really were real or not. I've told you about when Hank Handegraaff confronted uh, Benny Hinn. And Benny said, man, you're busting my chops every day on the radio. I wish you'd stop. And Hank said, you show me one bona fide miracle that you've done, and I'll apologize to you on national radio. So Hinn brought him pictures of an x-ray. Two sets of x-rays of the same person. One had a tumor in the lung. The other one, clear as could be. Hank said, well, I guess you did it. He said, but I'm going to take these to a doctor. He took, took them to a doctor. You know what the doctor said? Well, yeah, the tumor's gone because it was surgically removed. Hen didn't perform a miracle at all. If there was a miracle performed, it was the surgeon who had been gifted by God with the skills and the mind and the ability to remove a tumor. It had nothing to do with Benny Hen. It's just, this is so important. Okay, so what does it mean then? Well, here's the example of Jesus, Philippians 2, 5 through 8. We don't quote this because this, is, this goes against the flesh. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. That means something to be held on to, to be equal, but made himself of no reputation. That means emptied himself of his privileges. I put that in brackets so you know that's not in the scripture, but that's what it means. Taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Now Paul said, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ that produced that. There's another passage that's very similar. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 through 24. For to this you were called because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. Okay, you're going to follow Jesus' example? Peter says, here it is. Who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who when he was reviled did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness. That's what it means when the Bible says that Christ was our example that we should follow. It doesn't mean that I go out casting out demons, healing the sick, raising the dead, and rebuking the wind and the weather. Thank you, Miss Lucy. So being like Jesus then is primarily talking about emulating his character, humility, and his God, uh, godliness in the face of trials and temptation, not performing more or more dramatic miracles than he. Now, this is so important because 
We're surrounded today by popular Christianity on television and radio that says you're supposed to be doing all the miracles he did, including casting out demons. I want to give you this quote, and then we're going to stop right here, and we'll, we'll come to point number five next time around. Are the miracles of Jesus then normative for every believer? Do we have the power to work miracles like the apostles did? That's where we'll stop right there. Now you say, well, this was all about, it's supposed to all be about demons and defense. We're getting there. But if we don't have this understanding first, we're going to have a wrong understanding of what it means to cast out demons and rebuke the devil and all that kind of stuff. So we'll, we'll stop right there and we'll pick up there next time around. Thank you so much for your attentiveness. You've been great. God bless you. We'll take a break. We'll have our service here in a few minutes.